0: Well, it's good to be with you. You can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. We're going to start there in just a moment. Um, We're going to be talking about Jesus, interestingly enough. And so for the last three weeks, this is our fourth week, we've been talking about um, some of the foundational thoughts about Jesus, if you will. And some of the very first things he did, some of the very first things he said, one of, the, one of the very first things he says was in Mark when he announced his kingdom. And, and we, we started our discussion there. And, and what does that mean when he announced the kingdom and the fact that he's announcing a new kingdom, God's kingdom, and he's the king of that kingdom. And we started there. And, he, and then he started to ask people. He started to ask people to follow him. And the very first few disciples that followed him, they dropped their nets. They, they changed everything about everything. They started following him. And this, this very revolutionary movement started in the corner Uh, in this kind of odd corner of the world in which um, things started to build and grow in momentum. And for a lot of people, it was a very difficult thing to see because they'd never seen anything like it, and they didn't know exactly what to do with it. And so following Jesus then was actually a pretty difficult thing to do. And believe it or not, I believe even today, following Jesus can be a very difficult thing to do today. Not difficult like, you know... Algebra is difficult, but difficult to to figure out how do I follow Jesus with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, with all of my strength. What does that really look like? And I believe just that statement alone, that Jesus can be difficult. Following Jesus can be difficult. We live in a culture today where the modern American Western church has tried to make following Jesus look very attractive. And and we'll do whatever we can to get people into doors and say, oh yeah, it's great, it's great, come on, come on, come on. in here, the water is warm, it feels awesome, right, and as soon as they get in, we go, oh, but now you got to drop everything, pick up your cross daily, follow him, no matter what it costs, you know what I mean, like, and there's like this bait and switch, in which Jesus solves all our problems, but then when we start following Jesus, we realize, oh no, no, it's not that he solves all the problems, although he is the hope to all those things, but following Jesus is going to come at a cost, following Jesus is going to come with all sorts of things attached to it, and so today, What I want us to do and what I think we've always tried to do as a church is we want to be really honest about what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to actually follow in the path of his life. And so doing a series called Jesus, it gives us a chance to really get inside the story and the life of Jesus. We get inside really the teachings of it and really what it means to, live, to, to follow, if you will, this often difficult, life changing, life altering types of things that Jesus did, because we do want to be those kind of people who are revolutionary forces for good in our world, don't we? Jesus says that the narrows the way, which I don't know about you, but that actually kind of sounds appealing to me. I kind of like that. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to go. Father, we do pray, even as we already said as we come through these doors today with all sorts of stuff. Lord, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would would break through any distraction that may be wanting to get in the way of what you want us to hear today. Father, I pray that we today come in collectively as as desperate people, desperate for you in the sense that we want to hear desperately what you want to say to us today. May we see the space we're in, and, and we know that every place that you've created is holy. But today we get to stand together on holy ground, ready to receive from you. And so, Father, I pray that uh, um, as we enter into your Word, that God it would it would cut like a knife right into our right into our hearts, and where you need to speak to us. We pray these things in your name, Amen. So, Mark chapter three. Verse numero uno. You all ready? Are you all ready? Yeah. Yes. yes, let's do this. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, as he often did, right? And a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. An interesting two sentences, is it not? So there's a covert operation going on here already in which these people who happen to be religious leaders are trying to catch Jesus healing someone. That's a really crazy thing, right? If he heals someone, we're gonna catch him. So to fully understand what's happening, we have to get inside the story of what's going on in this day and age and to understand this We even have to look at what's the context, what, what are we talking about? And we see the Sabbath as a central part of the confrontation right here in, this, in these two verses. And the Sabbath, of course, was the day that was set apart for the Jewish people, for the day of the Lord, it was also a day of rest, all those sorts of things. And it comes up, the, 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 the idea of Sabbath and the law of the Sabbath comes up time and time again in the Torah, which the Torah, of course, is the first five books of the Bible. It comes up time and time again, in and the, in, in the Israelites, they lived and breathed the Torah, you know what I mean? It was called the way, the truth, and the life, which sounds familiar, right? It was called, it was something they aspired to live. And so when Jesus came, he said, hey, I didn't come away, come to do away with the Torah or the law. I actually came to fulfill it. I came to make it live and breathe and, and have a heart because sometimes the 613 laws in the Torah didn't feel like I had a heart. You know what I'm saying? And he's saying, I'm gonna give it a heart. I'm gonna make it live. I'm gonna make it breathe. So there's 613 laws in the Torah and one of them uh, was about the Sabbath. And that you got to keep it holy and sacred and you can't do any work on it you got to you got to do all these things and so you see this coming up and the thing that's interesting about the sabbath and the laws is there's rabbis and they would have different teachings about what would be considered work so you can't work on the sabbath and one rabbi would say well this is work and this isn't work and, and this is work but that that's not work and another rabbi would come along and he'd say well that is definitely work but this one not so much. This one yeah, this one yeah. And so you have these different interpretations of what would be considered work by these rabbis. And so there's a debate going on about what is truly work on the Sabbath. Now, occasionally there was by the way, those sorts of those sorts of understandings and interpretations of the law that was called their yoke, all right? And Jesus, there's one rabbi that came along and he said, "My yoke is easy," which is very interesting. So occasionally there would be situations in which two of the 613 laws would be in conflict with each other. It was kind of strange, right? Like, how can they be in conflict with each other? Um, For example, there is a law that said you should protect life no matter what, meaning you should try and save life. There was a law about that. And so one time you had this really interesting conversation come up with a rabbi said, well, I I have a situation. What if your donkey falls in a hole... On the Sabbath. What do you do then? Because you have the law to protect and save life to get the donkey out of the hole, but you also have the law of the Sabbath, which you're not allowed to work. And if you've ever tried to pull a donkey out of a hole, it's a lot of work. So this is a conversation that is really relevant to us because we all have donkeys that fall into holes often. And we have to and we often ask ourselves, what do I do on Sunday, right? If this happens. And so this is what's going on, and this is actually a very real Conversation, and so it was the job of the rabbis and the Pharisees and all these religious leaders to interpret the law, and they would have to say which law was more weightier—is the word they use—or lighter, and so the weightier one would, would win the argument. And so, as I've already said, every yoke was a little different, and so there was two sides to the argument on what to do about the donkey in the hole on the Sabbath, which was interesting. And this is the story in Mark 3 that Jesus is wading into, which is really weird because they're going to catch him on the Sabbath doing work or not doing work. Because if he heals, he's doing work. If he doesn't heal, he's not honoring life, right? And so it's this strange sort of thing, and they're trying to catch him. And so, let's see what happens, shall we? Verse 3. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, "Stand up in front of everyone." <clears throat> then Jesus asked them, "Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill?" But they remained silent. So Jesus knows what he's doing, right? This is the great thing about Jesus. Is he brings the man front and center. He's purposefully setting up conflict, in my opinion, and, and he's asking, what is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or do evil? <laughs> this, is like, this is like spiritual kung fu. He's like, wah, and <laughs> he's like, I'm about to show you something, he's like, he's like, he changes the discussion, and it's not about which side of the fence are you on, and he says, which one is more... To save life, to kill life. To, is, it, is it better to do good or to do evil? He's got them like in a spiritual headlock. Like they don't know what to do now. They're like, they're sitting there silent. Like, I, I don't know what to say. And he's saying, and so what are they supposed to say? Do evil? I mean, they're not going to say that, right? They're not going to say, to save life, uh, that's, to do good. That's what you're supposed to do. And he knows that's what he's doing to them. And so they're silent. They won't even answer a basic question. So let's look at how Jesus responds in verse five. He looked around at them as they're silent in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He looked around at them when was was angry. This is where we should all collectively gasp. (gasps) Jesus was angry? Jesus got angry? Because we don't ever really talk about the angry Jesus, do we? what we talk about are like these pictures we have on the screen, right, of Jesus looking all solemn. Maybe he has his hands like this going, oh, you know, I don't know what we, what we see. Or maybe we see Jesus in a white, white bathrobe holding a lamb. Or we see him with this perfectly conditioned ironed hair. You know what I'm saying? That's how we see Jesus. We don't necessarily see Jesus as an angry kind of Jesus. And this was a different Jesus. And many of us don't think about it too often. And there's, a, there's the Greek word that you get right here, and it was called for angry, was a word called arge, spelled O R G E. Arge. Everybody say arge. Say it like you feel it. Say arge. You guys actually sound mad at me. It's okay. It's okay. The word originally had this combination of mixed between uh, grief, if you will, and desire there was another kind of interpretation that was called justifiable abhorrence. And I know you guys use the word abhorrence a lot, but if you can, in case you don't, for the few of you that don't, it means a feeling of repulsion and disgust. And so Jesus is looking around at them in justifiable abhorrence and some sort of repulsion and disgust. Another description of arge was passionate agitation of the soul, which sounds a little bit like what your doctor would say about that rash, right? It's uh, a little argey. A little bad case of our gay, passionate agitation of the soul. So Jesus was angry, right? He was our gay. And he had this justifiable abhorrence, this reasonable disgust, this passionate agitation of the soul. This is what Jesus is feeling. You guys thought we were about talking about Sabbath, but we're actually not. We're talking about Jesus being angry. And what is that? Because we don't think about Jesus being angry very often, Jesus has this, has this desire for them to get it, but they just don't get it. He's saying, you're breaking my heart here. And this isn't like a low-grade boiling type of anger. This isn't a kind of anger that just you know blows its top every once in a while. Like he gets, oh, he just you know, loses his temper. This isn't that kind of anger. This is like the kind of anger that you have whenever you see an injustice or you see something that's wrong, and it bothers you. And you look around, and you're like, what is happening? Why is this happening? This is the kind of anger he felt. They were silent. They were trying to catch him. It makes me think about a few other instances in the scriptures where people got angry about an injustice and they decided to do something about it. You guys remember the story of Moses when he was young? He was the prince of Egypt. He wasn't, a, he wasn't an Egyptian, right? He was adopted into the family. He was a Hebrew, he was an Israelite. So he wasn't blood, but he was a part of the Egyptian Pharaoh's family. I mean, he was way up the chain. But he was, a, he was an Israelite and he would see his people out who were now slaves of the Egyptians. And it says one day he went out and he was watching his fellow countrymen at work harden their labor. And then he saw an Egyptian slave driver get up and start to beat one of his fellow Hebrew slaves. And he gets so angry that this anger inside of him explodes out into this reaction. And what does he do? He kills the Egyptian and buries him in the sand. He actually causes a catastrophic event, series of events through his reaction and through his explosion of anger and his which you would say is a justifiable abhorrence to a passionate agitation of the soul by the injustice done by the Egyptian slave driver. Seems all justifiable, right? There's another instance, one of my favorite that I talk about often is when Jesus is being arrested and he's in the garden and Peter's there. And he's being arrested, and Peter gets so upset about the betrayal of Judas and so upset about this injustice being to Jesus that he swings into action literally with a sword, right? He pulls out a sword, and, he's, and he chops a dude's ear off, which makes me think he's either really, really terrible with a sword or he's really, really good. Like he actually meant to get the ear only, which would be awesome, but I think he's probably really bad with the sword and just totally missed the dude's head. So there's an ear lying on the ground because Peter was angry. He had a justifiable abhorrence. He was upset and an explosion of anger comes up out of him and it causes harm. (laughs) When I was like 14 years old, uh, we moved here to Oklahoma City and I started going to a new school and I was the new kid in class Everybody, anybody ever been a new kid in class? Anybody? Yeah, that's, that's a great feeling, isn't it? Um, I didn't know anyone. I was the newbie, and I think, I think it was either my first day or my second day. This one kid, though, he, he des- decided to befriend me, which was really kind. He started to befriend me, <laughs> and we, he invites me to his lunch table, and I'm like, oh, this is great. And we start hanging out a little bit because nobody else is acting like I exist, I don't have any scars from this period of life, I promise. But um, a couple weeks after moving here, he he invites me over to his house and asks me if I want to spend the night. And I'm like, yeah, sure, why not? That would be cool. And so I go over there, and <laughs> and and here's the thing. that was kind of sidebar to the story is we had dinner at his house, and it was the first time that I ever had had uh, ramen noodles. At 14 years old, I'd never discovered this 17-cent nutritional uh sort of anomaly that exists in our world that i just discovered it and i thought it was in heaven for a second i didn't realize that it was actually not good but um <clears throat> anyway after dinner his parents left the house and it was just me and and him and his little sister i left the house and i go where'd your parents go and he goes oh they work nights which was weird. We're 14 years old. I was like, well, so I'm spending the night, and your, your parents are gone? Like, it's just us three? He's like, yeah. I'm like, all right. And I was mad at him. I should have called my parents, but I was mad at him for from giving me any ramen, and so I didn't call him. And so I'm upset, and oh, no, I'm, I'm staying there, and we're, we're going. Through, and a couple hours later, he says, hey, Tim, I got to talk to you about something. I'm like, all right. Like, yeah, what's going on? I'm like, totally, dude. You're my only friend. <laughs> and he's like, okay, so he begins to unwrap this story for me, He's like, here's the thing, man. There's a lot of crime in southwest Oklahoma City, um, specifically along 89th Street between Penn and May. And I've been thinking about this. And I I would like to invite you to be a part of something. Um, He's like, I've been working on my ninja skills. This is a true story. This happened to me. This is before Napoleon Dynamite. He says, I've been working on on my ninja skills, and I am trying to put together a ninja gang to fight crime along 89th Street between Penn and May. And I'm sitting here going, is this really happening? And so he goes on and he goes on, and he's like, listen, we got to do something about this crime. Like, it's just, we need to get out there, and we need to fight it. And here's the thing, my parents are gone all night. We can just do it. Like, we can just get out there and do it. And I was like, man... I'm not really, like, a ninja, (laughs) and this is kind of lame, so I think I'm out, and he goes, I thought you'd say that. Here's the thing. I need someone to stay here and watch my little sister while I go out and fight crime. You want to be that guy? I'll have a walkie-talkie and stuff, and I'm like, what what happened to my only friend? Like, I'm, like, totally, like, I have nobody in Oklahoma now, that, you know what I mean? So, anyway, um, he was so, like, it was so real. Like he was so passionate about the crime on 89th Street between Penn and May, and um, he's and and he really had thought this out. And I I lacked the Argay, if you will, for 89th Street. Apparently, he wanted me to explode with excitement and purpose. He wanted me to get to the same level of discontent if you will he wanted me to want he wanted me to get into the fight that he wanted to get me to, him to get into and here's the thing about it is that everybody is i say everybody everybody's sort of looking for a fight we're looking for a fight and most people are just getting themselves in the wrong fight putting themselves in the wrong place to get into the fight and so many people are looking for somewhere have you ever exploded in anger by the way like how many of you i've kind of been scared by your own anger in your life how many of you guys have said things that you can't believe you said anybody with me? Yeah. Okay. This is actually one that you don't have to be anonymous. Has anybody said anything that you wish you wouldn't have said? And you're like, how did I even say that? Are you with me? How many, how many of you guys have broken something? You're like, I can't believe I just broke that. Anybody with me? How many of you guys have hit someone? If, I'm just kidding. <laughs> how <laughs> many guys, how many guys have, I mean, we have done things out of anger that we cannot believe we've done. And we're sitting here going, there's like this nuclear reaction that happens in us, Right where it feels like we can leap buildings in single bounds and formulate ninja groups and, and do whatever we want to do. And, what, and we can even surprise ourselves. But I, I want to go back to Mark 3, because the question in Mark 3 is, how does Jesus respond to his, to his anger, to his argay? What does he do with it? So verse 5, remember he said this. He says He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Isn't that not weird? Such a strange story. He miraculously heals a guy, and then they go, we got to kill that guy. This is too much. But here's what I want you to notice. It's not about them. What does Jesus' anger lead to? Jesus' anger leads to healing and restoration, doesn't it? Jesus' anger leads to peace and justice. This is interesting because Moses' anger led to an Egyptian that's dead, buried in the sand. Peter's anger led to an ear literally on the ground, which, by the way, it's good news that God continues their story and there's redemption in it. We haven't even mentioned the fact that the anger of, remember when Jesus went to his home town and they got so angry with him, they pushed him to the side of a hill and they wanted to push him off a cliff to kill him? You remember whenever Jesus was, they were so angry with Jesus that they said, They started shouting, crucify him, crucify him. We have no other king but Caesar. There's all these sorts of explosions of anger that lead people to do things they thought they would never do. And here's Jesus and he's responding in a completely different way. And you're going, yeah, but it's not the same kind of anger. It's not the same kind of anger. I know it's not. That's the point. It's not the same kind of anger. It's not the same kind of anger. It's not one rooted in humanity and justice and blood and all those things. It's, it's rooted in injustice and the supernatural power of God to do something about the wrong things that exist in this world. There are so many wrong things that exist in this world. There are so many things that should fire us up and that we should be upset about and that we should care about. But we live in a world that we actually get angry about the things that don't matter to God and nobody gets angry about the things that do matter to God. And here, here's, what, here's what Jesus is doing right here. He's saying, you know what? There, is, there should be a passionate agitation of the soul about the things that are wrong in life. And then whenever you react to them, there could be this nuclear reaction of power that actually brings healing and restoration instead of hurt and harm and more violence. Are you with me now? Hmm. Maybe you and I need a kind of anger that isn't looking for a fight in the wrong places. And maybe I need to use the word anger differently. Maybe, maybe what I'm really talking about, this, this makes it feel more like applicable, is we're talking about a holy, a holy anguish in our heart, aren't we? A holy, passionate agitation of the soul. I keep saying that, right? That doesn't lash out in religious rants, but boils over like rocket fuel and mounds of compassion and loads of love because you can't take it anymore. We don't need more religious rants, do we? Have you guys gotten tired of religious rants yet? Anybody with me on that one? We don't need more people standing up, telling us what they're standing against, and then forgetting that Jesus was actually standing up all the time for the people that everyone was against. He's actually about standing up for things, not just against things. Does that mean that we just accept everything? No, it just means that we have a platform and a voice and a message that's way louder than the things that we aren't for. Because we are for so much good and so much that is right that it drowns out the things that are wrong. So when you pour up the volume and turn up the volume and all that's wrong in the world, all you're doing is taking a bulldozer to the world. And sometimes we need to put the bulldozer in park. Are you with me? And we need to start letting our passion be channeled in a different way, one that brings healing and restoration, not more destruction. That was actually pretty good. Are you with me? Okay. So Jesus' anger gets channeled into a very specific act of love. And kindness and healing, and so I, I would say the problem, of course, is not our anger or anguish. the problem is what we do with it. You know the attractional Jesus that the modern American Western Church has uh, promoted as the way, which by the way we 're part of, and I totally understand that i 've been there, done that, but Jesus is more than our happy pill and he 's more than our answer man and he 's more than our eternal security card jesus didn't call Jesus, jesus actually called us. difficult things that the modern Western American church, if you will, doesn't always tell us that he called us to. He calls us to difficult things that don't come easy. And and, And I've said this for years that love, the kind of love that he calls us to, is not an easy kind of love. It's one that loves the unlovable a lot of times. Notice how Jesus reacts to the Pharisees in this story. What does he do? What does he do to the Pharisees? This is going to be a really hard one. What does he do? Nothing. <laughs> he doesn't do anything. He looks at them in anger, is frustrated, and then he goes, boom, and he heals a dude. You know what I mean? He doesn't, he doesn't lash out with them. He doesn't try and tell them everything that they're doing wrong. So here's the other thing. Our energy shouldn't be spent on Christians who are doing it wrong either. Our energy should be spent on bringing life to a city. Our energy should be spent on actually bringing healing and restoration not looking around at everybody else, comparing ourselves and measuring ourselves by what they do and don't do. Now, I'm not saying we do this, but I'm saying this is what I was feeling in my heart as I read this, feeling my own soul about what am I actually feeling, and do I actually feel agitated about anything, or am I just sort of in this zone of, unless it affects me, it doesn't affect me. You know, occasionally around here, I I ask the question what do you what do you love to do what are you dreaming about right because what you dream about is what you, or what you what do you care about because what you care about is what you dream about who do you want to become? these are the kind of questions we've asked around here over the last five years and and, and in that conversation the hope has become that you would discover something that you really uh, would maybe even call like oh yeah I feel really called to this or I feel like A deep conviction about this. Uh, Perhaps you'd even say it's it's even shaping my vocation and what I do with my life. The things that I dream about, the things that God's placed in my heart, the ways that I'm wired and gifted. We talk about that, right? Maybe it's time to actually kind of intersect or interject another kind of question there. And the question is, what gives you? (laughs) And if I can overuse the statement, what gives you passionate agitation of the soul? What is it that fires you up? What is it that when you see it, you have to do something about it? What stirs you? What's the holy anguish? Because maybe that's exactly where God is speaking to you. What's the thing that when you see it and you think that it's wrong, you think someone's got to do something about it, perhaps it's actually God saying, yeah, that's, that someone is you. You're the one supposed to do something about it. And I don't know, man. I just think that there's a lot of things that we that are very uncomfortable and that should distress us that we just don't think about. You know what I'm talking about? That we've just chose to not think about it. And that, my friends, is what you call the American way. That is what you call American version of Christianity rooted in mediocrity, in which we find ourselves Moving away from the margins and moving away from the hard, difficult things that Jesus calls us to, to find ourselves in the comfortable middle that's called the broad way. But what did Jesus say? Oh, the, the way is narrow. There's not, there's not, you're going to see everything. The way is narrow. That it leads to life. So why do I talk about this today? Well, we're in week four of the series, right? Why this story? Why this topic? Um, Jesus came to change things, didn't he? Kind of to change everything about everything. That's why he came. He came to bring life. And we can't get into the story and the life of Jesus without realizing he came to turn the tables over in holy anguish about things that he felt like needed healing and restoration. That's why he came. It was to turn the tables over no matter what it took, right? To fix all the brokenness that existed around us. So this is why we continually stay around here. And I'm actually about, I'm actually about done. This is why we continually stay around here. We're gonna bring life to the city by loving God and living the gospel. I don't know how much you guys ever think about that statement and what it really means, but I think about it often, as I should. But I think about what does it mean to bring life, meaning that we're gonna be people who are gonna be people of action, people looking to heal and restore, meaning we aren't just gonna be people who look to take life, consume life, consume in the church culture, right? But we are actually gonna bring life that we're gonna love God, meaning that we, that we understand that our love and affection for God is where everything begins. That everything is rooted in our love for God. He is our everything in the center of our affection. And that we're gonna live the gospel. We're gonna bring life to our city by loving God and living the gospel. Jesus came and he lived the gospel, and he's calling us to do the same thing. And, and so today, the hope is just, we gotta be reminded of what the mission of Jesus was, what he came to do, what he was, what he was, what he was here for. And for us, we have to ask ourselves, am I actually doing the difficult things that Jesus calls us to live? Am I actually looking at things around me in this world and saying, you know what, that fires me up and I'm gonna allow that to actually shape the things that I'm actually giving myself to, that I'm gonna bring life to. Bringing life to our city will not be (laughs) a walk in the park. It will not be an easy endeavor. You know, I think about our early days often, and I say our early days, like it was a long time ago. It's funny, yesterday, Grayson, he's four, he said, man, I've lived a long time. And Addie goes, Grayson, you're only four. And he goes, yeah, I know, that's a long time. And sometimes four, now five for us, feels like a long time. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's, like, it's just like a blink, you know what I mean? When I think about all that, I think about our story often, and I think about, why did we start? Why are we here? Did we just start another church because, uh, we'll, just, we'll just make it real personal, because Tim wanted to? Christy and Tim wanted to do something? Like, uh, Tim really likes teaching? Trust me, I don't like this. I actually dread it. Can I, I mean, can I be real? I don't mean that I don't enjoy it when I'm up here, but I don't love this. It's difficult. Why do we start this? Why are we here? Someone asked me yesterday, I was getting my haircut. I was getting my haircut and he goes, why do you do what you do? And I was like, dude, I don't know. I I actually said that. No, I, I said, man, I think for us there was a day and a time in which we just looked around at our life and we said what are we doing and we said what, what, are, we, what are we really doing what are we giving ourselves to and when we asked that question we started to go I don't know what I'm doing and then we started going what really bothers us what do we got to give life to what do we got to fix and all this stuff started coming out you know what I mean And there was this passionate agitation of the soul within us that erupted. And it was about, could we see a church? Could we see a church who couldn't take it anymore? Who couldn't take mediocre versions of Christianity, but instead was committed to scaling the walls of normacy for the sake of God's kingdom? Could we we see a church like that? because we're so tired. We're so tired of of just living in the middle, of not caring about the things that God cares about. We wanted to give our lives to something that mattered. And we started saying that to other people and other people started saying, me too, me too. I'm done, me too, I'm, I'm in. Let's do this thing, right? That's why we're here. Because people realize that, you know what? Faith is not relegated to a seat. Faith is actually bringing life to a city. Faith is not reserved to a quiet time, but faith is actually exercised in places that are beyond reason, where we start to see the miraculous happen and courage rising up in us where fear shrinks and the enemy is defeated. That is the kind of faith that we wanna see in a church like this. And that doesn't come from places where we're just kind of dancing around saying, oh, Jesus, yeah, he's so awesome, he's so good. It comes from a place where we go, you know what, it's not right. This world's not right. There's some of you in here right now. I'm calling you out. Some of you get so bothered by the poor. And what I mean by that is you have such a compassion for them and you want to see something change in our city. And I'm saying you got to do something about it then. Quit sitting on it. Some of you get so bothered. Some of you get so bothered by things going around the world. Right? fact that people can't get clean water can't have proper nutrition and you're like I got I, I don't know this bothers me whenever I think about it, it bothers me I'm like okay maybe that's exactly what God is trying to put in he's trying to burn a passionate agitation in your soul where you actually get out of your seat and go and live out your faith and bring life and healing and restoration instead of thinking that our faith is relegated to making sure everybody understands our political stance so they know what we're against. Maybe that's not even the conversation. Jesus changes the conversation all the time. And he redirected to the things that mattered. Some of us in here, we're like, I don't even know if I have a passionate agitation of my soul, it sounds a little weird. I get it. And what I would say is, it's there. You just gotta start looking. You start to start paying attention to the world around you. There are people that, I, it's, for them, it's kids. It's like, hey, you know what? There's so much adulting in this world. Like everybody's like a professional adulter right now. It's like too much adulting. And nobody's caring about kids and teenagers. That's the truth. Who's gonna care about them? Everybody's like, oh, they'll be fine. Eventually they'll get to adulting like the rest of us. So some of you, it's, it's like, I care about the next generation. Some of you, it's like, you know what? I just actually care about my neighbors. Like I'm tired of everybody in my neighborhood being a nameless face and you know what? I read the scriptures and I can't get away from it. It Bothers me. Do something. You see, every time that Jesus was trying to change something, it came from a place in which it was not okay staying the way it was. Something had to give, something had to change and it took an eruption of, of, of energy, right in that individual, whether it be Jesus or someone else, to usher in a new day. And that's, that's what we're saying right now. That's why this church is here. That's why it's here. Some of you are just saying, I just I don't feel anger, but I feel hope. I feel hope because I really want to see the power of God in my life, you want to learn, you want to grow, you want to be more faithful, maybe that's where you're at. Listen, you're not here by accident. None of us are. So, by the way, and I'm just rambling now, that's okay. When I, we talk about bringing life to our city by loving God and loving the gospel. The other statement we used to say all the time, and we still say That we started with it was actually this the statement before the statement you know when you have a vision statement but then before the vision statement you had a different statement it was that we're talking about that statement that actually helped shape the vision statement but it was just like i don't even know what what we call it but it actually was a statement that started everything that we want to be the church the best way we know how that that little sentence was what came out of us out of the agitation of our soul we want to be the church the best way we know how and that wasn't a that wasn't an indictment on all other churches, but it was a reality that we didn't feel like we were being the church the best way we knew how. And here's the thing, that's all we can do, right? We can give our best. But here's the problem, is that most of us don't actually give our best to God. We give her what we can to God, and we give what we, when we feel like we should. We don't actually give our best to God. We give our best to ourselves. Think about your life. And maybe, maybe, this message about the mission of Jesus, which is not on full display in this little story, but I believe, it, I believe it touches on something that's very real to me, and I think it's very real to you. We just don't spend enough time thinking about what really bothers us, so it will actually change us. So, would you bow your heads? Father, would you give us vision today? Would you give us conviction and give us purpose? Father, I pray against complacency in this room. I pray against fear. I pray against all the things that look to stop us, like busyness or maybe a lack of confidence. Lord, would you, would you let faith rise up in here in such a way? that, Father, we would begin to tap into the things that, that only you can do. The Father, we would look at things in this world that are not right. And we'd be able to turn around and bring healing and restoration right behind it. The Father, we wouldn't be looking for the wrong fight. We wouldn't be looking in the wrong places. But the Father, you give us a vision to see exactly what it is you want us to see. The Father, you put in our hearts that thing that we care about And that, Father, as your body, that we would go and do it. Lord, we love you. We pray now for these final few minutes of response that, Lord, you'd use this time for us to pray and worship you, Father. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Can I say one thing that just hit me while I was praying? Sometimes the, the, the reaction to these sort of messages, if there is one, is that you feel like I'm supposed to go out and go charge the hill now as if you're being sent out like a mercenary by yourself. Listen, the best way to deal with the passionate agitation in your soul is to share it with this body and to pray about it together and to get a vision together and then to mobilize others to go bring life with you. I'm not telling you to go out and just do your own thing, okay? I I just feel like that's when a church thrives. Because here's the thing, we do all sorts of stuff here like groups and serve teams and all those things are great, but what makes a church thrive is when the body of Christ comes together, speaks vision out to one another, brings others into that, and then we go together and we go be the church the best way we know how. I saw that throw that in there. Just a little thought. But this altar's open. We'd love for you to come and pray. Maybe something on your heart right now that you'd like, I just want to respond to. Would you stand with us? Would you come and pray?